Art is the doorway into our soul. It's really the seed of transformation. And without it, um, the law is not enough. Without it, we can't evolve, we can't transcend. There's nothing, there's no depth work. And so I've always been a deeply creative person, but I also understand the limitations of that creativity. version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. Hey everybody, welcome to The Remakers. I'm Lillian Spencer and I am so thrilled that you are joining us today for our next guest, Grace Williams. Grace is a really powerful up-and-coming leader. She lives in Tasmania in Australia, where she is finishing a law degree, making multiple documentary films, and running an organization called Citizen Tasmania. Basically, she combines a passion for the arts with a passion for law and human rights in a really powerful and compelling way. Another really fascinating thing about this conversation is for anyone who's been listening to the podcast at all so far, one of the themes that keeps coming through is gentleness. Now, we didn't plan this, but it seems like almost every guest we've had on has reinforced this idea in their own way. And Grace certainly does. She talks about gentle activism and what it means to her and how she leads with it. My other favorite part of this conversation is when she talks to us about joy and how she believes that joy is increasingly the fuel in her car, not just the byproduct of the work that she gets to do. So I hope this conversation brings you tremendous joy as you listen to the story of a young woman who was born in a refugee camp in Ghana and with any joy and justice in this world will be the next Prime Minister of Australia one day, or whatever else she chooses to be. So without further ado, here is Grace. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Remakers. I'm so thrilled that you are about to listen to this next guest. Today we have on Grace Williams. Grace, thank you for being here today. It's so lovely to meet you. Thank you, Lily. Really lovely to meet you too. Now, I just want to start, I've given our audience a little bit of your story and a little bit of your background, but can you just help set the scene for us a little more? Because I think your story is pretty cool, pretty extraordinary. And I would just like to hear a little bit about your childhood, where you were born, some of the forces that shaped you um, growing up, and kind of some of the things that you think have sort of led you to this work that you're doing now and the things that matter to you today, which I know is a very big question, but can you just tell us a little bit about you as a kid, what that was like, and we'll kind of go from there? Yeah. Um, so I know forces that shaped me, I had some time to reflect on this and I had to, as a legal person, break it down in four parts. <laughs> I love it. Um, um, and, and they're subparts to this four part. <laughs> series of my childhood. Um, The first, obviously, and sadly, but also transformatively being war, conflict and chaos. So the first part is war. So my parents escaped the civil war in West Africa and Sierra Leone. 
was a 10-year civil war. So I never actually got to be born in the country of my ethnicity. I was born in um, a neighbouring West African state called Ghana, and I grew up in a refugee camp. And so in that setting, I just had chaos and I kind of emerged from conflict and war and it was really fascinating because I think that was my my foundation it was really how I kind of saw myself as a displaced person as a homeless person and you know one one percent of humanity one in a hundred um, people have experienced displacement and so having those early experiences of being like like almost in this limbo land of not knowing not having a solid foundation and being in a level of chaos where you can't take much for granted. And so you can't take close relationships, um, deep connections, uh, learning for granted. And so that was a fundamental driving force in my life. Um, I remember always living in a bit of a multicultural bubble where I grew up in Ghana, like having French speakers, Arabic speakers, people from really diverse often conflict-ridden um, contexts coming together. And so that was quite a formative part in my life. I think the other strong force for me has been law. So obviously when you're a displaced person living in a um, neighbouring state, law becomes intrinsic to your well-being. It becomes the only thing that protects you, that gives you a sense of identity and um, hope. So it's almost like law and order, like like that's that's your only that's the only thing that you have to get through because you hope that um, international systems will protect your um, right to refugee status. You hope that because you have a law that you'll be fine. And for many people, that's that is the case, and for for others, it isn't. So, at two opposite ends of the spectrum, you've got um, this chaos, and then you've got order in the law. And I think later on, when I moved to Australia at the age of eight, it, another influence that came into my like my life was literature and the arts. So having the capacity to read and write, literacy, to see the world in a creative, non-black and white way, because oftentimes when you're in a chaos conflict zone, it's very easy to develop a, a, a this traumatic mindset of things are really bad or things are really good. And I found that earlier on literature, arts, music was this opening to integrate life. And in that space, life could be pleasant. It could be unpleasant, but it, it could also just be life. It could be a reality outside of, you know, these diametrically opposed forces and obviously, I think the last, um, like the last force in my life, would be um, an an identity which is black womanhood. Like that's that's a very marginalized perspective of the world. Obviously, I don't fully identify with the fact that you know I'm a physical being. There's much more to me than my um, outward form identity. But I have to say that that has influenced the way I see things. Um, 
that has influenced the way I perceive injustice, what I think, how I see myself in the world. And it's influenced my ability to actually do really radical social critique because I am on the margins. What I have experienced and what I've seen is completely different from most people's perspective, coupled with the fact that I have access to literature and literacy to express it. And so these four forces, law, war, literature, my femininity, you know, black womanhood, have given me this, like, I would call it a little sphere, a little world on which I stand on and look across reality. And I find that it's um, a, a perspective that I'm, I'm opening up to more and more as I grow and develop as a, as a human being. From that place of those four different big forces shaping your identity, were you pretty clear from the outset that you wanted to sort of merge the literature artistic um, world and that sort of deeper kind of swimming in humanity with the legal and the kind of more right-brained, how are we going to fix it? How are we going to have the laws and the policies and the protections in place? Because for your undergraduate degree, you go on to do um, political economy and philosophy and you're doing law and you're making films. Like I can see this real theme of like both and coming together in all of your work. Was that a conscious choice from the outset? It was a conscious choice um, because uh, art is the doorway into our soul. It's really the seed of transformation. And without it, um, the law is not enough. Without it, we can't evolve. We can't transcend. There's nothing, there's no depth work. And so I've always been a deeply creative person but I also understand the limitations of that creativity. And sometimes when creativity isn't informed by these broad social factors like war, like conflict, like, you know, the injustices experienced by people with certain forms, you know, and identities in this world, we can't, we can't, we can't do it with a binary perspective and so into like just like we have to integrate ourselves as congruent human beings, we have to integrate the two fields, the left and the right. And it's extremely difficult holding space for both. But when you find the middle and you can do it, that's where magic and transformation happens. And I'm very privileged to live in the world where I could do both. So you moved to Australia at the age of eight to Tasmania. Did you sense even then, I mean, I'm sure your life must have completely changed. Like, let's just start there. What was that like to go from living as a refugee in another state, surrounded in what you describe as a multicultural bubble, speaking all, all these different languages, hearing all these different languages, to suddenly moving to some place that is considered this kind of very isolated part of Australia, which is already considered a, you know, a country that kind of hangs out on its own in the Pacific, like... What was that like as an eight-year-old? I write in growing up African in Australia that it was like a plant uprooted and I was shocked. Think about when you transplant a plant, like something that's been almost like rooted and grounded in a nice pot. Think about your mosteria that you've been cultivating for five years and it's beautiful. And then you have to lift it up out of its warm soil and stick it in cold Tasmanian winter dirt. It's traumatizing. 
it's it's inc- like migration and the process of resettlement. I don't care at what age you are. Uh, maybe it's my, much more difficult for adults, but it's an incredibly traumatizing process. And I remember feeling so cold. I was like, I need to go back. <laughs> That was my first thought. I'm like, when can I leave? What about what is your, this place? Were your parents had they wanted Australia? Was that the top their top pick, or how did that happen? You don't get to pick. This Damn is it. the unfortunate situation. You don't. You do not get to pick. You have no control of your life. That's why you're incredibly reliant on functional legal systems. That's why I love the law so much because at least it provides a platform. You don't. You know you. You get assessed and whoever has a quota for you accepts you. And I actually really love that um, Australia um, picked our family because I actually, I love it. Tas- like, but Launceston, Tasmania was really, really physically, emotionally challenging place. I, I did not like the very beginnings of it, just like most people wouldn't like the very beginnings of it. It's cultural shock. It's climate shock. It's climate shock. I mean, it's vitamin D deficiency.com. I didn't go to far North Queensland. No, I would have loved that actually, but I've grown to love um, Tasmania and I I love the cold now. I like snow now. <laughs> I've um I finally invested in a classic puffy. <laughs> For years I didn't do it, and then I realized, oh, this is what makes it easier to live in this part of. You just get a puffy jacket. Probably don't you don't probably don't have it in Sydney. Right? Oh no, they've become the season. Like they are this winter's must-have accessory everywhere, and like cracks me up because I've also lived in much colder climates in other places, and I'm like, really, guys, like. It's- yeah, and I used to I used to judge. I used to judge that like judge them and now I am them. <laughs> <laughs> Happens to us all. I know. Okay, so I also want to go back to when you mentioned literature right from the outset and the arts. And so I'm curious, if your parents weren't a natural incubator for some of the values and worldview that clearly are core to who you are, did you find that in literature or was it other people? Like where where did that, was it just innate in you? Like where where do you think some of those things, did you have favorite books or, or did, and it's kind of a two-part question, were there literature and literary forces that you kind of connected with early on? I, I think it was innate in me, but I also found it in books. So books were my teachers. So like, I think, I think my mum shares this story of me growing up and everything I had around me was books. I, I think I was reading the Bible because it was the only thing that was available. But anyway, you got to take what you have, right? And then later on at 12, I discovered Shakespeare and I became addicted, like, it's just like it's a bit nerdy and like a bit odd that a 12-year-old would be. Like I found Macbeth and I was like, whoa, this is dark. Like <laughs> I'm into this. And I just got really obsessed with poetry and sonnets and writing. Like I would write all the time and read as much as possible. I have this funny story in primary school. I turn up and like my teachers would look at me funny and like, I'd like be hiding stuff. Like I'd just go and fall asleep at my desk. And then my teacher would be like, are you, are you okay? Like what's going on? And I'm like, I just can't stop reading at night. 
And so I had to go on this 12-step addiction plan to figure out how to stop like reading at night because I'd stay up till um, 2 a.m. with a fake little light that I invented to keep going. And I remember my like primary school teacher, Mrs. Flack, was saying to me, you know, you can just stop at this chapter and to still feel like you're in it come back later. Like you just reread it. And I'm like, but I can't, I have impulse control issues. And to to this day I can't, like if I want to read it, I'll read it. And so, I mean, I was just incredibly lucky that I, I had access to, to the, um, the capacity to be able to read because it just gave me these brilliant ideas and made me think, well, if, if people can think this way and write this way, why can't I? And yeah, they might not be um, people in my immediate environment that can be that for me, but the characters in this book can. And I just, I am, um, I really just lost myself in that world. Yeah. Let's zoom out for a second for, for our listeners and talk to them a little bit about what you are, what does your world look like now? Because you've already made a film, which I would love you to talk to us about, Citizen. You've written books um, and you've started an organization, Citizen Tasmania. So can you just like, let's just start with a film. Talk to us about the film, where the idea for that came from, what it, what it is, um, and we'll just go from there. Yeah. So my first film, which I just, I, I have so much love for, it came out of law school. So in third year, I was um, privileged enough to have this thing called the Sandy Duncanson Social Justice Bursary. And I, I was in the law faculty and doing some research. So I, human rights is an intrinsic part of who I am. Like, I mean, like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for human rights law. Um, and I realized that Tasmania, Australia is the only liberal democracy without like a fundamental bill of rights and concrete like legal comprehensive systems to, you know, protect our, you know, freedom of political communication, all of all of this stuff. And then I was just like, oh my God, what the hell? Like, why, why are we in this state? And isn't that what every activist goes like, but why? And I didn't know I was doing a classic activist thing, but I just was like, there's got to be a under like there's got to be some sort of thing that we can do to get people to understand that these rights and protections mean a lot and we fought a lot for them and people still don't have them and if we live in a liberal democracy and we are as privileged to be in a space where we're mostly safe clothed and fed why can't we just take a little bit step like a little step forward to enshrining these rights and like like almost like creating a symbolic space for us to continue the work of, you know, social change and transformation. And obviously like when you study law, you have a very specific skill set. And that skill set, I don't think it's accessible to most people. Most people uh, can't read like thousands of pages of high court judgments, find ratio destendi, like know what is going on to be able to advocate for themselves. It's a very exclusive and privileged, highly literate space that most people just can't navigate. And so I thought to myself from my background and where I've come from and the people and communities that I spend time with, I'm like, they're not going to get a legal policy argument. They don't even care about a legal policy argument. 
what makes people care? And then I had to go back to my childhood addiction with books and writing and film. And my arts, communication, connection, storytelling is the only way to get people to care about issues. It might not be the only way, but it's a, it's a key. It's a critical aspect. And so having not really made anything extremely like at all at that stage, I was like, oh, I should make a film. And that was, <laughs> of course, I was like, I was like, I, I worked it out. I'm like, mm, I should make a film. Film speaks to people who don't have literal, like literacy as a privilege. Films speak to um, everyone. Films are oftentimes non-judgmental um, and films can communicate a lot without thousands of pages of high court judgments. And so I decided to embark on this journey and I went across um, Tasmania with um, with the support of some really cool people to make this film and to ask people about their human rights stories and their challenges. And I interviewed um, people from a whole range of experience, from war, like I and someone who, you know, experienced the Sierra Leonean civil war that my family fled from, um, war, conflict, like sexual abuse, discrimination, um, statelessness, like all of these like core aspects of what we struggle with in our in our lives and I put it on the screen and I literally was like, guys, I need us to look at the importance of law and that film kind of served as a beginning stages of like intersecting what I learned in law and what I know about reality, having experienced half of these things and also how to change it. And the sweet spot. So that that kind of film brought it all together. It was thirty eight minutes. I can't. I just. I look back and I just think, how did I do that? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know how to do it. And um, luckily, I had lots of support and um, people just really, really, really benefited from it. Like the people who had their stories featured benefited from it. The community benefited from having the education. And from that, my philosophy of um, activism and community development was birth, which is to educate and to empower and to connect people. Um, That's like my little trifecta for transformational leadership and change. And it was not just in the making of the film, it was in the sharing of the stories that, that, that birthed my second film, actually. So I was screening this film at a human rights um, award ceremony and a really dear woman came up and saw it and was like, I I have a human rights violation. You know, my daughter was murdered because of domestic violence in Australia. Can you help me tell my story? And so it was through this, like, you know, this journey of coming into the arts, like that using, you know, the law as the foundation that brought me back into, you know, some of the stuff that I continue and still do now. So, yeah. So talk to us more about that and we'll just keep talking about all of it because it's all so wonderful. Tell us about what you're working on now. Um, so I, I have, so citizens kind of like blossoming, I think it's in a blossoming stage. Um, it's, it's basically a vehicle for these values to have an independent identity, um, and for other people to kind of feel safe and nurtured and supported to take on that vision and move it beyond who I am and what I do. But I'm still a really, um, 
strong part of it. I direct it and I love directing it, but um, I'm always passionate about getting more people to have their voices in it because that's, you know, we learn from each other and it's much more of a positive experience when um, diverse people come in with. So this is the organization you've started, Citizen Tasmania. Yeah, Citizen Tasmania. So um, one of the things I did with that, with the film, the first film, Citizen, was because it was actually so, it resonated on such a really fundamental level, I thought there has to be a way where we can do this all the time. And that's how Citizen was birthed. Citizen Tasmania, the film Citizen. I, it's just, I just had to connect the two because I was like, oh, I can't actually leave this. I've found the sweet spot and I can actually do some change here. And I founded Citizen Tasmania um, to be able to like build my funding base to make the second film with called One a Week, which is what we're going to talk about next, I'm assuming. Um, and One a Week was quite a it was a calling. Like I never asked to make a film like that. It never came into my mind. I was like led into it. And I made one a week and it's through Citizen that we are leading the none a week campaign. And if anyone isn't aware of one a week, none a week. So in Australia, one woman is murdered by a current of like a former partner. Um, Domestic violence is the leading cause of like um, homelessness and disability and health risks for women. And so I made this film one a week and it really is the foundation of this none a week campaign, like zero a week, because uh, women should not be murdered in their homes. They should not be murdered by people that are meant to love them. And um, it's really one of Citizen's core goals and objective is achieving like this transformational and I would even dare I say ambitious goal of none a week, but also a lot of people haven't yet found the way out of this cycle of violence. And I'm hoping that with this ambitious vision and goal that we can start to believe in a world where that like gendered violence is not a reality and it's possible to have healthy, safe relationships. And that's the norm and not, and not an exception or not a beautiful thing, but it's actually something that everyone is capable of accessing. Yeah. That's the foundation. Um, you know, we, we sometimes talk in Australia Remade about the idea that for women's rights and safety, it's like we're still reaching for the floor. You know, the floor is women should be safe. Women should not be discriminated against at work. Women should not be sexually harassed by men. Like women should be able to go about our lives without having to think about all this crap all the time, where to walk, what to wear, you know, is my drink safe? Is my boss trying to grab my ass. Like we should be able to, you know, and that's the floor. That is not the sky. And so we need that firm floor to stand on. And, um, I'm curious how you find engaging in this and making films about uh, both the films now that, that you've done, because this is hard. Like it is hard and heartbreaking stuff to go to. And I think sometimes in activism and as communicators, we, we look for gentle ways in on hard topics or we're afraid that people are going to find it too confronting or they're just going to want to turn away and the pain for people of sharing their story. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and what you've learned along the way in kind of telling hard stories? Oh, Lily, it's, it is like you've got to have a lot of internal space and resilience, I have to say. you It's 
extremely challenging um, because, you know, you're looking at it and you know that what you're contributing to it is so tiny you know that you're not going to be able to transform this in this generation yet you're sitting there listening to listen to listening to it and you I I just think you just you have to have this expansiveness about you to be able to hold and carry it and carry other people through it and um courage courage uh, is a fundamental part of it um you 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 need to be courageous. I have to be courageous because it's not, it is, as you've said, it is not easy. People don't want to listen. People don't want to know that their behaviour might be contributing to this harm. People don't like unhappy statistics. And, um, but we, we have to look at reality for what it is. And so sometimes being a bearer of reality is really ugly because they're like, well, why can't we talk about happy things? Why, why, you know, and, and, and there is this issue of victim blaming in there. It's all, if, or, or if it's, if it's not victim blaming, it's like, oh, perpetrators have issues too. And you're constantly having to, to like, I, I sometimes, I, I sometimes get triggered because I, I think if I'm in an audience, if I'm showing the film, if I'm working with someone, I don't know what's in their lives. I don't know I don't know if they're getting abused at the moment. I don't know if they have to, like, because it's so prevalent and it's so common. Talking about it is actually scary because you cannot you cannot guarantee that the person you are talking to about it is not already experiencing it in their daily lives or their friend is not already experiencing it in their daily lives. So what I've been doing recently is um, working towards building a very targeted, safe community for this issue. Um, And so in my work, mentoring some younger women, women, I, I, I shouldn't call them younger women. We're the same age, basically. They might be just like two years younger than me, but we're all doing it together. My real focus in building courage is to create safe circles where no one is judged for, A, experiencing abuse, knowing that their culture is abusive and hates women, um, feeling like they can share their their experiences with abuse and not feeling like because I'm here advocating for it that my life has to be perfect and that I have to be completely free of abuse to be able to say abuse is not okay because it touches on every of our lives. I can't say that my life is abuse-free all the time. It's going to happen to us. And oftentimes in activism, uh, dare I say, we like to get on our pedestals and soapboxes and speak very objectively and critically and higher than Tao. But the reality is we are all experiencing this trauma right now. Everyone is. And to act like it hasn't happened to me, it it might not be happening to the person that I'm working with, is not a transformative way of going about it. And so I'm really passionate about bringing um, young women, particularly marginalised histories, um, women of black identity, women of brown identity, women, you know, from the global south into the room so they can almost talk about the fact that, yes, my parents are abusive with one another. 
yes, my cousin is in an abusive relationship. I don't want to be in an abusive relationship. How can I change it? I have experienced abuse. How can, how can I change it? And I think what has been lacking from my experiences is not enough safe space for victims, survivors, transformers, because when we're dealing with this issue, it's, it's everything is impacting on each other and we can't separate ourselves and say, no, actually, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a victim. I'm just here doing my thing. I'm so, I'm such a great activist. It's like, no, we've all, we've all experienced some level of victimization and making sure that we are nurtured in the process of changing and working with people on the level that they're at is the only way to, to transform such a ingrained, I'm talking like thousands of years. Um, and I had the privilege of um, supporting some young women and like being a part of their stories and like quite young activists and they, you know, did some work in their community and that they were expecting hundreds of years of misogyny to, to, to crumble with um, one act. And I said to them, like, it's, 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 this is a long haul thing and we've got to hold each other's hands through it. And we're going to face so much crap from our community about this. That's why we're here for one another. We actually have to be here for one another through this and ensure that each of us don't end up in unsafe relationships because when that is modelled to you or your life, you feel like you have no way of getting out of it. And so safety, security, sisterhood is really fundamental to, to seeing that this changes. I love that. Thank you. Um, I mean, I've often, I've often thought that if we had any idea what people were really walking around with, the stories that people were really holding, that we would just be far more gentle and compassionate with everyone. Enjoying this conversation and want more, you can check out our website, australiaremade.org. Really doesn't matter where you live because this website has some pretty universal themes and stories and a beautiful vision that we wove together from listening to people from all walks of life answer the question, imagine you have woken up in the country of your dreams, what is it like? So I hope there'll be something there that will resonate or inspire you. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, ideas, or feedback, the podcast email is podcast at australiaremade.org. Thanks. And you call yourself a gentle activist. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I feel like we've been kind of already going there. Is that is that what helped articulate that for you as a different way that you wanted to approach activism, storytelling, human rights law, social change, all of it? Mm. Gentle activism is activism without resistance. Um, resistance is exhausting. Resistance is challenging. Um, I don't have time for resisting anyone. But what I do have time for having is accepting reality as it is and then choosing to transcend and be better in community. So um can you just lot- say that again? I'm sorry, <laughs> everyone needs to hear that again. Just <laughs> I can't say it again. <laughs> I'm on the fly advocacying. 
but it is, it is, it is so, it is, I'm not about resisting anything. I'm about transcending in community um, and accepting reality as it is. The fact is um, we do not live in a perfect world. It's never going to be perfect because people are people. But that, 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 that shouldn't impact on the way I decide to transform this world and it shouldn't impact, like it should have a, as minimal impact on my well-being. And in choosing to take the brave and courageous path to not perpetuate violence, trauma and harm in the world, I should be flying, not fighting. I should actually like literally have eagle-like wings soaring through it as opposed to fighting people because that that perspective is what we all need to be and what we all need to be at. And so for me, gentle activism is not necessarily easy. Uh, it's I, I think it's a lot harder because we live in a boundary world and everyone wants to fight on each other. Even the good people want to fight each other down for some reason. And I'm just like, this is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. I need to parallel reverse park out of this situation. I can't, can't my nervous system can't, can't, can contain this amount of crazy but it's this sense of um resisting takes too much energy and meeting people where they're at and seeking to understand why why we have come to the places that we have come and what are small steps not just big policy steps but I'm talking like body language steps I'm talking like your tone of voice when you speak to another human being and your ability to be present during the change with another person. And so oftentimes I think as activists, the goal of achieving it becomes secondary to the the actual reality of being with other humans in the process. And the process for me, gentle activism is about a process. It's a process of change. It is not the change itself. It's understanding that we are all engaged in transforming one another every single second. This conversation is transformative. And I prioritise that level of transformation over the actual goal of, say, no women getting murdered. Because I, I know that there might be a point where we get to it one day, but while we're getting there, we may as well have a good time on the way up. And refusing to get bogged down by theoretical perspectives like like fighting over just like the most inane things like oh I just I don't know like it might be it might be like a policy objective or a way of achieving things like um I don't something as simple as like I don't like this color for this post like I'm like but is it really about the color or is it really about our friendship (laughs) Is it really about us, the fact that we are choosing to live our values out and it it means that um, by doing that we actually have to be present, engaging, relational, um, not non-hierarchical, having a form like a, a very flat model of talking and being with one another. We were talking before we started to record about how you know, it's almost like a family feud where the closer we are in our views on the things in the world, 
the deeper the divisions can be within activism and social change, you know, the, the more painful um, the fights can become and how toxic that is to swimming, you know, and, and to be to be made to feel that um, we're supposed to hate each other over a difference in approach or a difference on, you know, a particular policy when actually we want the same things and our values are in the same place. Um, there's There's so much noise and and kind of performative conflict around activism right now that I find exhausting. And then I do think it makes a lot of people just want to leave the space completely like, okay, stuff swimming in this consciousness all the time. It is exhausting. I'm going to go work for, you know, a, a good corporate or I'm going to go try my hand in, in some other sphere because even if you're not even doing it for a living, it's just, it can just be exhausting to care in a, in a world where caring is kind of mired in conflict all the time. And, and it's not to say, you know, okay, let's just bliss out and be kind of hippy trippy. Um, we don't have to engage with it all. You know, we don't have to, res- we don't have to ever be ang- like, it's not to say anger is wrong, or I don't hear you saying any of that. I hear you saying like, you can feel it all and still choose a different way of working and being in the world. I, I just think just because it has a good label on it doesn't mean it's an abusive, violent space. Like you, you might be you might be doing good, but have really abusive, violent tactics in achieving that goal, which is not. It's just perpetuating harm because you don't have process embedded, and process is actually like at every step of the way. How am I actually honoring the person next to me? Um, we've just externalized the goals beyond that. And even like well-being is not is not central. Like I think I, we were saying that activism eats its young really, really quickly, like with unpaid work, your expectations of you being brilliant and always sacrificing yourself and you're not <laughs> – you're not a good activist if you're not at every rally doing everything, being perfect and fully aligned with the vision. It's it's actually a psychotic and and violent way of going about it. And we do violence to ourselves in the process. And it means that we're not as effective. Um, nothing gets changed quicker by using the same models that are used to oppress, uh, to transform. Like you end up, you end up becoming exactly what you hate. And that's what happens when you resist. The, the, harder, the harder you fight and the other you think that you're not like the other side who is just, just toxic, you become that. And so I think as young people, you know, I know I've got sucked into some of that idealism and realise actually, no, this is not an appropriate way of being. Like violence is violence, whether it's for a good cause or for capitalism or and climate, like, you know, like using fossil fuels. We're still, we're still using um, violent tactics. And I think for some reason we haven't had enough space. We haven't. We haven't have we haven't taken enough rest and space to determine what tactics we're going to use, and so that's why spaces like Australia Remade are. It's just so fundamentally important and and powerful because you are literally taking the space to find out how am I not going to abuse people in the process of transforming like actually transforming together and involving. And it, it's it's really hard. I think, you know, why would why should someone stay in an environment where they might have similar 
mental beliefs about things, but that doesn't translate to a necessary depth that's needed to sustain transformation. Like I can agree with all sorts of people on on women's rights and human rights, but it doesn't necessarily mean I can work with them in a community or like feel loved and supported and nurtured by them. At the end of the day, it's just a thought. And if we don't create systems and processes around moving our thoughts into um, positive action, then we're going to keep being violent to one another and oppressing each other and calling that uh, social change. Man, so what when you think ahead to the world that you're looking at, um, the work that you want to do and the way that you want to do it, give me your big picture kind of ideal scenario in terms of if you could if you could just keep going and you've already I feel like you've already done so much that I can't actually wrap my head around it like I struggle to want to unpack three or four achievements and that I know is the tip of the iceberg and and so do you do you have a sense of where to from here for you and for the work that you want to do and the way that you want to keep doing it? Yeah, I've been really reflecting on this lately, Lily, and I just think, I just think I need more radical joy. I think joy needs to be the fuel in my car and not the byproduct. I can't expect my activism and all the things that I do to generate joy. And so I'm I'm making joy the fundamental principle by which this transformation happens because it's a nonviolent tool. And so for me, um, having joy is integrating everything that I've learned from my experience and having this sense of like, A, no need for external validation, um, no need to prove to any anything or anyone that I'm capable of doing what I want because I'll just do it anyway. Just fully having that and in the midst of others who want to actually use the joy of transforming and evolving and learning and growing together to achieve this change. And I've, I've recently started thinking like from a political science, public policy perspective and legal perspective of how we can increase our understanding, engagement of joy in politics. So uh, in 2019, I kind of like mapped out this idea with a friend about um, like Australia's first electoral app, which would help people to engage on the public policy issues that they cared about and actually connected with other uh, people in their local electorate and their politicians about issues that they care about as well. So like building joy for change rather than starting from this sucks, I hate them, (laughs) I'm going to fight them, I'm going to resist them. Building um, common interests, finding out what makes us come alive, what what we want to fight for, what defines us and what our purpose is in this world. And so I'm very committed to seeing like literally doing an audit and an assessment of my life being like, where am I getting the most joy and how can I maximize that so that everyone that interacts with this work is uplifted and understands that activism 
is actually one of the greatest joys you can experience in this world to to see reality, to accept it, and then to transform yourself and to transform what you you want to see in this world. Like it's it's the most powerful place anyone can be in this world. And I don't think that that's been communicated well enough. And I would like to embody that more in the work that I do. And I'd like to support a lot more people to come on, to, to, to use that, that transformative joy as, as a way to get through their careers, as a way to like deal with their family and do all sorts of challenges that come. Like joy is not um, an ephemeral thing. It's not something that you switch on and switch off. It's, it's what carries you through life. And, I guess that's that's my vision. I'm I'm working on it. <laughs> that is the best vision I've ever heard. How I mean, and first, I love that you also bring together the sort of legal analytical brain to that. Like I'm doing an audit of my life to figure out this beautiful, soulful, artistic notion of being fueled by joy. And where am I getting the most? Where are you getting the most joy right now? Um, I'm getting the most joy from my connections with other young women who are just like I'm sick of being abused I'm really tired of it and I I actually want to live a good life like I want to I want to have my beingness and my purpose manifested in this world and like seeing younger women like who literally correct me on things like like gendered violent behavior like for example like um one of the girls in in the work that I do uh recently said to me I I just don't understand why girls get so excited on the first date when somebody asks them to be their boyfriend you just have to think about it long it's just not something you go into and I was like oh my god you're right that's (laughs) so true I didn't even think about that but I'm just like I'm learning so much from them and I'm just absolutely in love with it. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't know that there was all of this stuff that I didn't know. Tell me more, please help me with my dating life. <laughs> like, I'm obviously not equipped to do this. You are. <laughs> mentor me. <laughs> I'm not going to be your mentor. <laughs> oh my goodness. But I'm really getting joy from those interactions with, um, young women who are just like enough is enough this is actually what I want and it's just been joyous like learning from the people I'm supposed to be teaching and leading I just I love it to me it sounds like what what you are bringing is this perspective that says joy is actually it like joy is valid it is not it is not the thing that you get to experience in small doses when you've been a good little worker bee or um, so you've, you've managed to tick all the boxes for that week or there's some good outcome somewhere in the world that you can point to. Like you don't have to earn and justify your joy. Joy is actually the whole thing that keeps you going. And I think people who can hold and bring together these two spaces are just incredibly enlightening and powerful because we get taught that it's a binary, right? We get taught you can either go off and live a happy life, whatever that looks like for you, or you can dig in and change the world and try to be someone of meaning and importance and impact. But we still have this very martyrdom kind of frame around what that 
actually looks like. And so if you and your generation are coming through with a third way model of activism and changing the world that says, stuff that, I am not going to sacrifice myself on the altar of the cause, no matter how noble it is. And I'm not going to unplug from the pain because it's just too much of a downer and I can go use my talents and skills and you know, make a lot of money and have a great life elsewhere, then that just gives me insane hope. Like, holla freaking Leah, can I follow you? Like, can I, you know, that is a thing that, that is kind of it, isn't it? To be able to embody both of those things. So that is just incredibly exciting to hear. And like, I was going to ask you, you know, what is your advice for young leaders coming up behind you? Or what is the message that you want to send to your elders? But I almost feel like you're just carving your own way right now. And it's like, hey, come join me or don't, but this is how we're doing it. And joy is not a byproduct. It's the fuel. It's how we drive the car. Without it, there's no point. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think staying connected to joy can be hard. And, mm-hmm. and I love your answer that it's, you know, that self-care is sometimes, you know, a bubble bath, but actually often it's doing the work with the people that you care about. And that's where the feel comes from. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So good. I love it so much. I also want to circle back to to the reactions that you've had from making these films about hard things, because there is joy in, in kind of coming through the other side of some of the pain and some of the heartbreak and seeing people have a response of greater recognition or empathy or, oh, I didn't, I didn't know what the face of a human rights violation looked like in Tasmania in Australia. And now I can see that. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about some of the responses that you've had to some of those creative projects in in the communities that have seen them? Um, I remember one story of this man who used to think that people of colour who experienced racism were just making it up because Australia was not a racist country. And then he came and he watched one of my films and he came to me and he's like, I did not know this was going on here. I had no idea. And I just looked at him and I'm like, thank you for your openness. Like, thank you for seeing reality, accepting reality and not closing yourself to the fact that you had a previous perspective that wasn't informed. So those like little, little seeds, these little changes, it's almost like, yeah, that's, 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 that's why I do it because, and this desire for other people to just take a little step being like, oh, yeah, and that person might, might not necessarily change behavior or change friendships or decide to start protesting but they are internally transformed and so these stories of like I didn't know or things like I didn't know that psychological and emotional abuse and someone yelling at me is a form of abuse I didn't know I didn't know that gaslighting is a thing I didn't know what love bombing is like so like so much um revelation 
happens in people when they're able to hear others speak of their experiences. And for me, I think that man, like, coming up to me and saying, I didn't think that the, that racism was a thing. Um, and you just think, oh, my God, I can understand why. You live in a space where you just do not, you cannot see it. And for this one moment, you've got to see it in your own community. And that's my model. It's kind of a reverse hero model. So we're used to watching people on Hollywood, on our screens, telling us to be better. But when you screen people in community on screens where other people see them, the impact is is micro, but it's transcendent. It's what actually encourages transformation because you can no longer ignore what's a part of you. This is a living, breathing being whom you live with. This is their experience of the world. And it's your job to witness it with them. Um, and some, pe- some people come out of it and they're like, wow. And even those that have resistance say, wow. And I just think that little, that little minutiae of change that's happened is enough. It's enough because they can't go back to a reality where they don't know that anymore. Mm, yeah, their, their reality is forever changed. <sighs> Uh, I could talk to you for three hours, but we're going to need to start to um, to kind of bring it back and, and land the plane a little bit. And so I wanted to ask you a couple of quick rapid fire questions um, that we ask every guest we can on the show. Um, and so the first one is, and this can be big or little, can be silly or serious. What is something that is making life better for you right now? Mm. Being in Tasmania without COVID-19 and <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> I'm so happy I live here. Yeah. I just, I love it. It's so wonderful. I, I don't, I, you know, the whole world is going through such an upheaval and I'm just like, yep, yeah, I'm just going to get a coffee. And I just, I feel privileged because my whole childhood was an upheaval and now I'm in the, the least upheaval part of the world right now in a pandemic. It's, it's a pretty remarkable place to be. And for anyone listening outside of Australia, at the time that we're recording this, about half of Australia is in lockdown with the Delta variant of COVID and trying to keep it under control and still a fairly low rate of a vaccinated population. And Tassie does not have a single case. So you can walk around, no masks, no social distancing, everything's open. go to the pub. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Um, okay. And then can you give us a recommendation? It could be a book. It could be a podcast. It could be a film. Something that you have loved that has just stayed with you that you would recommend others go check out. In terms of a podcast, I'm an Oprah fan. So the Super Soul podcasts, I just, I like, just go there. It has everything, all of the resources. Just go there. Everyone's there. <laughs> go to Super Soul podcasts. Yeah, I'm with you. Absolutely with you. Okay. Um, something again could be big or little, something you've changed your mind about recently. I've changed my mind about how much joy I really need to be living in. I've like, I want to ramp it up. Like I want to be a vibrating maximum frequency, hundred percent joy. Like that's, that's something that, yeah, has to be a part of my life. And then lastly, is there something people get wrong about you? Yeah. Um, every time I travel outside of Australia, people People don't understand Australia. They don't. They don't know what. I was in 
every time I go out, I have to like, I say things like g'day, like really odd things that I don't say in my normal context <laughs> because I just need to say Australia, like in Tasmania, it's like this is Tasmania. Like I've, I get very like nativist when I go outside <laughs> of the country because I just need to prove a point because Tasmania gets left off the map. Like off the key rings, I'm like, Bunnings <laughs> did an ad and left Tasmania out. So I need to prove my geographic identity all the time when I'm outside of the community. So, it's sad. So you're just explaining Australia and Tasmania to people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, it's not Sydney. <laughs> it's not, it's actually not Sydney and it's not Melbourne. It, it exists. Trust me. This is the map. Oh my goodness. Well, Grace Williams, thank you so much for your time today. Talking to you has brought me an incredible amount of joy and reminded me to put that higher up in my list of priorities. And I hope it does the same for everybody listening. For people who want to find you, follow you, support what you're doing and, and see more of your work, is there where should they go? Is there a website, social media? Yeah. So Citizen Tasmania, just type in Citizen Tasmania on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, We've got an office therapy cat on our Instagram at the moment, so you can go have a look at him. Um, so just go at Citizen Taz um, on Instagram and you will see us posting some plants and art and our cat um, in our office on Liverpool Street in Hobart. So, yeah. And, oh, and my Twitter is Place of Grace 97 How immature is that? It's great. <laughs> we will, we'll put up links in the show notes so that people yeah. can just have a click. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. I am just insanely proud to know you now as a human on the planet. Thank you for the work that you are doing and the way that you are doing it and the, the transformation that you are leading. Um, it's just an honor. So thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for being an activist that did not unplug. Oh, it's Congratulations on sticking with Grace Williams is wonderful. Thank you for that conversation, Grace. And I want to try something that I picked up listening to Kelly Corrigan's podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, which I highly recommend, and share some of my own takeaways and notes from that conversation. The first one is that when you've been born into war, conflict, and chaos, you'll never take law, order, or human rights for granted, ever. That law is actually intrinsic to our well-being and the well-being of millions of people all over the world. Life isn't black and white. Sometimes life is just life, and literature and the arts help us to integrate life in all its messiness. Art is the doorway to the soul and the seed of our transformation. Sometimes those transformations happen on the inside and don't look obvious but we are nonetheless forever changed. The man who didn't know that racism existed in Australia until he saw Grace's film. When you can combine and harness the right brain and the left brain, or say the art and the law, real fireworks happen. Too much of our activism is still dysfunctional. We have to stop especially mistreating our young people in the pursuit of noble causes. Educate, empower, connect. It's a good strategy. 
Resistance may be necessary, but it is not our only tool. I heard Grace saying that her gentle activism invites us to consider reality as it is and then choose to transcend that reality and be better in community with others. And finally, joy is the fuel, not just the byproduct of good work. We shouldn't have to earn or justify our joy. We should be soaring. We are allowed to do important and hard things and have beautiful lives on the way up. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Thank you, Grace, our amazing guest. I really want to say that we appreciate every person who has taken the time to give us some feedback or to share this podcast with a friend, to write a review on Apple Podcasts. It is really our fuel and our joy, and it is keeping us going. We will see you next time over on The Remakers. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I record this podcast from Dara Country, which is just north of Sydney. I want to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present, and emerging on this land. I also want to thank my collaborator-in-chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.